0: Good evening, everyone. As I was sitting here, I uh, all of you probably know this. There's something just so delicious about the the silence that emerges in such a large group, and when I when I kind of begin to savor that, it makes it difficult to disrupt it. But um, here we go. (laughs) A little disruption. And what I'd like to disrupt the silence with is to carry on with this theme that I began uh, last week around dependent origination. You might remember, you might not. It can feel so long ago. <laughs> so much has happened probably in a week. I was sharing with you a, a kind of introduction to the Buddhist teaching on dependent origination. And hopefully sharing it with you in a way that was in some way applicable to your practice here. And I began just with these simple four lines that can describe uh, part of this teaching of dependent orig- origination, which were, when this is, that is from the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't from the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. And the way I described these four lines to you is I gave you this example of a seed and uh, when other conditions arise with a seed, a particular kind of soil and moisture and sunlight, another condition arises, the the blossoming, the growing of a plant that might blossom into a flower. You take away one of those conditions and then another condition can cease, like the ceasing of the flower or the plant. And you might remember when we explored it, I was also pointing out, even in that example, um, just that it implies this interdependent world that we live in. A world, really, which is more about uh, a world of verbs rather than nouns. Not things colliding, colliding into each other, but rather these, these processes that interact and intermingle that give rise to other, other processes or allow other processes to cease. And then you might remember the light bulb and the light switch. <laughs> right? The Buddha was really interested in, in a particular uh, quality or interested particularly about the conditions around our suffering and our freedom. And what made him so brilliant is he was pointing out the light switch or various light switches that can uh, turn off the light of our suffering and turn on the light of our, our freedom. And then lastly, uh, I wanted you to remember really the most important thing, that it was a bad analogy. <laughs> if you remember anything, oh yeah, Brian gave us a bad analogy. And it was bad because it can give us a sense that, it, that I'm in control, that I can just go over and switch the light switch off. It's so much more complex than this that we're not in control, yet we can influence. And tonight, I'd like to share with you some reflections on a very particular kind of arising, a particular kind of conditions that give rise to uh, this thing that we call a self, and this kind of self that's fixed and confining, and becoming curious about how is this self born? How does it arise? What are the conditions that are there? How can you become sensitive to this in your practice? And through that sensitivity, uh, uh, allow for a a freedom from such a confining self. And what I'd like to do is to begin with a poem, a poem that I I feel expresses this, this process of stepping out of a confined or fixed sense of self. And the poem's uh, by uh, Danusha Lameras, and it's entitled Fictional Characters, right? all these characters that we find in novels and things. She begins, do they ever want to escape, climb out of the curved white pages and enter our world? Holden Caulfield slipping in the side door of the movie theater to catch the two o'clock. Anna Karenina, sitting in the local diner, reading the paper as the waitress in a bright green uniform form serves up a cheeseburger and a Coke. (laughs) Even Hector, on break from the Iliad, takes a stroll through the park, admires a fresh bed of tulips. Who knows? Maybe they were growing tired of the author's mind, all its twists and turns, Or they were finally weary of stumbling around Pamplona, a bottle in each fist, eating lotuses on the banks of the Nile. Perhaps it was just too hot in the small California town where they'd been written into a lifetime of plowing fields. Whatever the reason, here they are, content to spend the day roaming the streets, rain falling on their phantasmal shoulders, enjoying the bustle of the crowd. Wouldn't you, if you could, step out of your own story to lean for an afternoon against the doorway of the five and dime, sipping your coffee, your life somewhere far behind you, all its heat and toil, nothing but a tale resting in the hands of a stranger, the dingy sidewalk ahead, wet and glistening. And again, wouldn't you, if you could, step out of your own story? To lean for an afternoon against the doorway of the five and dime, sipping your coffee, your life somewhere far behind you, all its heat and toil, nothing but a a tale resting in the hands of a stranger, the dingy sidewalk ahead, wet and glistening. Don't you think? Wouldn't it be so freeing to step out of your story? Or all the multitude of stories that you've probably noticed can harangue us? And you probably noticed by now how confining those stories are that this mind weaves. Sometimes it's, it's clearest if, if you reflect on how other people can tell stories about you and how confining they are. Sometimes, not always, family members are great for this, <laughs> to give you a feeling sense of this. I have a friend who is in a, a, quite a large family, and this was kind of taken to an extreme. The parents had a, a very particular view of all the siblings. So when they were growing up, there was the one who was really good in school, but if she became interested, for example, in singing or in music, they would say, that, that's not you. You're, you're the one that's really good in school. This is what you should be doing. Or the one who is really curious about music or art. you know, Or the one that they had pegged for that. They would really you know, uh, 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 support that child in that direction. Yet once they became interested in school or math, there would be the same kind of thing of, what are you doing being interested in math? You, you know you're actually not so good at math. Your talent is an art. You know, in, in subtle and not so subtle ways, we find this being done to us. But what's even more challenging is is these minds that do this to ourselves and, and the confinement that happens. And you've probably noticed also, on possibly on retreat, is that when there's less of a self, less of the storyline of such a confinement, there's more of an intimacy with experience. Sometimes there's more of a a fluidity or openness there. You might have tasted what one teacher, uh, Donald Rothberg, calls the thinning of the self, when it's thinner, when it's less entangled, and how freeing that feels. And I I want to point out, before I go further with this exploration of how the self is born, this confining sense of self, is to also name that this construction, kind of the constructions around a kind of self, can be really helpful. So it's not like we're throwing out everything. It's just learning how to skillfully use it. It's kind of like the simile of the raft that the Buddha uses around his teaching. He says, practitioners, I have taught the Dhamma compared to a raft for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of holding on to. So, Utilizing sometimes this construction of a self for the purpose, the purpose of crossing over, rather than holding on to it. And there are many constructions that can be very helpful just in terms of when we're navigating. For example, uh, things like ethics. Like one construct that I found really helpful, and it's problematic too, is is the construct of being a white person. Exploring that has been so important for my ethical life. Why is that? Because with a, a certain skin color, especially and in particular in this in this country there are kind of many kinds of privileges that can uh, be bestowed upon oneself that that if if they're not seen and worked with and noticed in terms of a social dynamic can lead to the continuation of so much oppression so it's a helpful construct and of yes there is a problematic aspect to it but so helpful because these things can be so subtle uh, the privileges that come with a certain color of skin. For example, let's take if I'm in the, the state I, I, I come from, in Arizona. If, if I get pulled over in Arizona, I know, I know that I'm not getting pulled over because of the color of my skin. It doesn't have to cross my mind. That's not a privilege that's uh, afforded to, to everyone in this country such an important thing to see, this dynamic of, of, of skin color. And this can be really explored through these constructs, these, these, these racial identities that can be so helpful for this discourse and this exploration. But like a raft for the purpose of crossing over to freedom for us all rather than something to hold on to. And the Buddha also uh, echoes this. One place you can find this is in a conversation he's having with uh, uh, Chitta, the elephant trainer's son. It's, it's another elephant trainer's son. Um, <laughs> and he <laughs> introduced us to pessa the elephant trainer's son. I think there's a lot of them. <laughs> and maybe just one thing about Chitta, because the elephant trainer's son, because I, I find something striking about him. So the story goes he actually got ordained seven times because he had left being ordained six times. (laughs) And even after that, on his last time of getting ordained, he attained awakening. So I just want to point out, probably most of you have not escaped yet and left the practice. You haven't gone even once. So just to show how good it's going. if he left six times and woke up, You know, the odds are good for all of us. (laughs) Anyway, back to this conversation he was having with the Buddha. They were having a rather complex conversation about this word, self. I don't want to get into the complexities of the conversation. But as they continued to, to talk, the Buddha finally said to Chitta, he said, listen, Chitta, this, You could say these words for the self, they're merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. To use this construction without misapprehending it, to not get hooked by it. So back to this, this curiosity, this exploration about how this self is born, the one that can be so confining in our lives. And I, I want to begin by uh, sharing with you some reflections about the self arising in terms of story because I think this is one of the easier places to get a feeling sense of the arising of this or this birth of this self and how it's, it's connected, how, how confining it is. And then we'll get into subtler and subtler aspects of the arising of this. I mean, one place to begin, which I, I find so fascinating, is just, again, all the stories that arise in the mind. Those, all those conversations and dialogues that your mind seems to still want to have. And have you noticed the various kinds of selves that, that arise in those conversations? The smart one the hero or many of the, the kind of the selves that, that Bonnie so um, wonderfully spoke about when she was speaking about uh, mana and also last night, uh, for example, the perpetrator or the victim. And you might notice, as I notice, that sometimes when there's a quality of maybe irritation or anger or excitement maybe mixed together in the mind, there can be those conversations Where you're explaining your point of view and the person's actually listening to you and they're getting your points and you tell them this and that and oh yeah. (laughs) And how good that feels to be able to tell them finally (laughs) what's really on your mind. (laughs) And there you are with the great argument, the one with the great argument. Have you ever been born as such a person? (laughs) And a lot of times it's out of some kind of conflict or anger or irritation. Other times the, the, the flavor might be leaning more into the, the, uh, the craving side, the attraction. The stories of attraction, the, 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 the conversations of getting to know someone else. And then those other stories of really getting to know someone else, <laughs> like in the biblical sense, <laughs> For some people, which some of you I'm sure have experienced, experience, when that, that quality of sexual energy starts moving, just the stories and fantasies that it weaves. And there we are, another self arising. And just with these examples, what I wanna point out is something that I uh, was speaking about uh, in my last talk is to notice that the self is arising out of this, these flavors of reactivity. It is born out of them. It's born out of the, the, the craving or the obsessing, out of the irritation, the anger, or even the excitement. It's not the other way around. So often, the way we understand the world is, here's a self, and then it grasps onto things. It pushes things away. It checks out. That's the way it happens, that the self is at the center, and then these reactions happen. So this is an invitation to really notice if that's the case. I find it so illuminating to to actually notice the self arising out of these these, uh, reactions. And this is why I emphasized last week this importance to see that this, this quote from uh, uh, the, the writer Eugene Gendlin, interactions first. And it's through interactions that these other things like a self arise. Can you notice that in the stories that arise in the mind? What's the fabric underneath it that gives birth to these different selves and these different conversations or these different scenarios. And I I, want to point this out a little more specifically about story in the mind. When there's a noticing of a story in my mind where I can get a sense of this birth of a self, I don't hang out and kind of analyze the story or figure it out. It's just that quick noticing of, oh, there's a kind of self that's arguing and I'll, sometimes I'll use the label, oh, becoming. Oh, there's becoming a self right here. Some people use the, the label, oh, selfing. Selfing is happening. Interesting. And then I simply notice that and move on with being present in my meditation. So this isn't kind of an, an analysis of thought. It's just, it's just a, that first flavor of noticing that there's a, a birth of a self there. And then there's a curiosity within that that there might be some flavors of reactivity there. Oh, interesting, the feeling of excitement that's there in the body, a little bit of agitation in the abdomen. Oh, that seems to be associated with that thinking process. Ah, This is some of the strands, the fabric, that gives birth to the self. And with this kind of labeling, like becoming or selfing, and it's for some of you, it might not even be using a label, just might be noticing, knowing that that's what's going on. That That's all that's needed. And what I mean by that, it's this reminder of what the light switch is in this practice. The light switch is just to be mindful, just to see. Just to notice that with this, this quality of mindfulness. Because that's where the freedom is. It reminds me of uh, the title of this. I think this book came out last year that I've uh, deeply appreciated by the Dharma teacher, Robert Bea, called The Scene That Frees. Can you trust the scene that frees, that sees the, the emergence, the, the birth of the self? And this right here, gaining confidence in this light switch, um, is is a, a continual process as we're on this retreat day after day after day. And just one side note about this is I, I think this is important to um, continually come back to because if your mind is like my mind, what I've noticed uh, uh, sometimes on retreat is that I have this mind that, that is still looking for some kind of dramatic experience or big, for the big insight to happen that feels like I'm waking up in some kind of way, that gives testimony that what, to what I'm doing here, feels like I'm really transforming. And so what the, the mind is looking for is the big stuff, the dramatic stuff. And it can believe, it can believe that somehow the big aha experiences equal transformation and equal freedom. And there's a good reason for this biologically. Because a lot of times where the way we feel releases, there's a, some kind of activation in the system. And then when that activation releases, it can feel very opening for the body. And then we can associate that with, oh, I must be transforming in some way. I, there must be, this must be leading to freedom. And yes, it's true. Spiritual insight sometimes is dramatic like that but most often it isn't. Transformation and freedom is, is just through the scene. It happens through the scene. It's, it's kind of like, it, it, just to give a, a bit of an analogy, and it might even be in the same process, just the developmental process. When we learn to walk or talk, we might not have some kind of huge dramatic experience of like, oh my God, I remember the moment when I walked. <laughs> it happened incrementally, the crawling and then to finally getting up and standing and then walking. Or when we finally developed out of those, those well, for me, those so difficult teenage years. <laughs> what a difficult time. <laughs> But I don't remember a moment where I felt like, oh my God, I am so glad the teenage years are over. And this like light shone down on me and there's this physical opening of no longer being a teenager. But there's an ease now of not being a teenager, a freedom from that. So to remember that that, that transformation is happening here, there's, there are these hearts and minds that are moving towards freedom that may never have the dramatic and it's tough, and I, I, I want to name that sometimes us teachers, including me, are guilty of reinforcing this because what often the stories that are told in the books that are sold are around the dramatic. And yes, there are those cases, but it can undermine the real process of what's going on and undermine really where the freedom is in the scene, the scene freeze. Okay, let's get back to the self, the birth of the (laughs) self. (laughs) Let's let's go a little bit deeper with this. One of the classical descriptions of dependent origination is something called the the twelve links of dependent origination. And tonight I just want to share with you a few of those links, not all of them, a few of the middle links links to get a, a few more of the nuances around the, the birth of a self, the becoming a self. And I, I do want to point out that there's many different ways to explain the, the, these 12 links of dependent origination, and what I want to share with you tonight is really specifically in a way to help with your practice. It can be a quite complex teaching, and, and my hope is that it will inform what we're doing here most of all rather than uh, uh, some kind of study about it. Just to take a step back just about these 12 links of dependent origination because their their roots are quite interesting and uh, their roots tie into what we're exploring here. There's a scholar from the University of Warsaw in Poland by the name of Joanna Jurowicz and she noticed, she she is a basically a Vedic scholar, and she noticed that the construction of the 12 links of dependent origination were the same construction that were used uh, in Vedic literature to um, share, uh, really to describe the creation story, a very specific creation story. A creation story of how we came to be in this world. So a creation myth. And what I find so striking about the Buddha and utilizing this same construction was instead of giving us a creation myth, he gave us a story to describe the arising of our suffering so that we can find the way out of our suffering, a, a, a way of, of, of towards freedom. So a person who is also telling us stories, the Buddha also telling us stories, but not just... Stories to tell stories or to explain the world, but rather stories that has this power to set us free. The links I want to share with you are these links, uh, the first one being contact. I think many of you will be familiar with these. Fasa, um, and then Avedna, feeling tone, which we've spoken a lot about. Craving. Clinging. Becoming and birth. And I want to go through these. Again, the contact, the feeling tone, or Vedana, craving, clinging, becoming, and birth. Just these six. And the way I want to explain them is to give you different examples of this, and also ways to explore it in your, in your um, practice while you're here. One place where I found it, it very striking and a little bit easier to see these links or get a feeling sense of them is in sitting meditation around physical pain. Because sometimes you can get a sense of even how, at least in this in, in this specific place around physical play, pain and sitting, how sometimes they can even feel sequential. And that can give more of a sense of them. And one way to do this, you don't have to do this, I used to do this and I really got a lot out of it, is to sit for a while, to sit in a, a, a certain position, but not too comfortable. You want to only be kind of comfortable. And to extend your sit a bit. So you might want to come into a sit a little bit earlier, or after the bell rings to sit a little, little bit longer, so that there's the environment where you can explore the whole dynamic of the arising of physical pain, and to notice what happens around that. It is... It is so cool <laughs> in terms of the birth of the self. <laughs> so, if you feel inclined, I invite you to do such a thing. So, let's say you go into a sit a little bit early, sitting, sitting, mindfulness at the forefront. And then there might be that particular flavor of contact that arises in the body around the realm of sensation, where you have those three things arising sensation, a body. And the knowing of that, and the three, those three things coming together, is this moment of contact. And then around physical plane, then there's a sense of it being unpleasant. And what I notice uh, in my sitting meditation is when the pain is less, there can be this sense of just being with the contact and the vedana and the feeling tone of it. And then noticing the the uh, the not wanting begin to emerge. And a lot of times the way I notice it begin to emerge is the body tightening around the pain. So there's a, tiny, a tightening or bracing. And then it can also, that can kind of come and go. Just that sense of the, the, uh, what would be the craving. The craving not to feel the pain, for the craving not to be there. And then getting a sense of how craving starts to emerge, it's how it starts to, to ripen into a kind of clinging, which you could say is just a, a stronger form of craving. Where now it's like, wow, <laughs> there's this real reactivity. A lot of times, again, this still, to me, on this level of this physical reactivity to the pain. And then the, the conditions are ripe for the arising of a self. It could be so much... So many different ways it arises. It could arise around a story. I think they're asleep. <laughs> they haven't rung the bell. <laughs> I could be injuring myself. All of those stories around that. Sometimes sometimes to me, it's just really a, 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 simply on a physical level of the sense of it feels like here is the self who now um, has been born, the one who doesn't want the pain. And it's a particular kind of feeling and there it is. It emerges out of this craving and this clinging. And then noticing the death of that self, a lot of times another self will arise very quickly when the bell rings or when there's a decision to move. Just to check that out, it gives us a, a feeling, sense of how these different selves arise and pass away. And there again, might be a sense of how the again using this this language of uh, Donald Donald Rothberg. How there's a a kind of thickening of the self that begins to happen around a, a, a sensation like that. Maybe maybe one story about about the uh, kind of a, a a very clear emergence of the arising of the self around. Uh, physical discomfort or could have been even emotional discomfort around um, in sitting. Many years ago, I used to teach meditation uh, five five days a week in the morning at a drug rehabilitation center. It was was actually, a I love the job just because there's something so powerful, I think, about early recovery. And it's always a group of people that get it in terms of craving leading to, to dukkha. And for any of you who are, are in recovery might remember the uh, often the challenge that is there in early recovery. It just the whole system can be in such a different place. And one morning we were sitting, just doing a brief sit. It must have been for probably just 10 or 15 minutes. And I remember in the middle of the, the sit, just the silence of 10 or 15 of us. And then um, in the silence, hearing the silence broken with this simple sound of someone saying, ring the damn bell. (laughs) (laughs) The arising of the self is great. (laughs) I love that they just expressed it, you know. (laughs) So maybe you could move before you get to that point just so uh, we can keep the silence. Most of the time, though, what I notice is that when a self emerges, it doesn't happen in this such a neatly packaged, simple, sequential manner. It is so much more complex than that, and it can happen so quickly. Another example of this, this happened at a, actually another retreat center. I was at another retreat center that had uh, water cups similar to what they have here, those plastic ones. And I remember being in the dining room. It was very, very quiet and dropping one of those. And I'm so so glad nothing was in it at least. But I remember the the moment it hit and it made that sound, there was a birth of a self so quickly. It was the birth of the bad meditator. (laughs) And just the the feeling of shame and embarrassment. You know, like the truth was finally out. Everybody knew it. I actually am not that mindful. <laughs> Do you ever have that feeling? <laughs> and there it was. It was like, boom. And, and I could feel that, that self emerging right there. And so I want to point out, it's it, you could say it's the self that gets created out of judging, out of self-judgment. So to notice the birth of the self, it, we don't have to catch this this in a sequential order it's just to notice of oh there's a self right there and then often sometimes becoming curious if it's still around if there's a quality of curiosity that can start to peer into that a quality of mindfulness of seeing the conditions oh yeah oh contact oh hearing oh vedna oh yeah unpleasant oh and then there's the reactivity there's the there's the reactivity to that sound And the the birth of a self. Ah, here it is. Oh, the birth of a self is just like this. Interesting. And it's just the scene, the scene that frees, the mindfulness of that. Seeing that again and again in so many different forms. And of course, it can happen around pleasant. Meditative experiences, too. The, the mind gets calm and settled. And I just want to point out a lot of times the birth of the self around this is, is in some ways, quite the opposite of what I just described. A lot of times it's so pleasant that a, that a self gets born, but the, the, the self feels so pleasant that sometimes it doesn't get seen until it dies, until the mind starts to wander here and there and there and here. And then there's this morning the morning for the death of the self that was such a great meditator. It was so awesome at, at, at concentration and mindfulness. <laughs> it was on to the way to awakening. <laughs> and then the pain is more connected with the death, the death of the self. So I just invite you to play around with this. And, and not to get too you know, rigid and technical about this. It's just a curiosity of how these selves are born and, and die. And notice how they arise out of these conditions. Through these processes, that's where a self is born. And also noticing when the self is thinner, when when the self is not there as much. When it's just, for example, contact in Vedana. When it's just seeing or hearing there might even be a little reactivity, but there's a strong mindfulness where there's no birth happening. And and the feeling of that, the freedom of that, even if it's subtle. And a reminder of, of one teaching from the uh, the Buddha, which uh, probably most of you are familiar with, when he was uh, teaching the bahia of the bark cloth. And I just want to share with you his teaching that he gave to bahia. Uh, just the short teaching he gave, because I think it fits so well with getting a sense of when the self is not there as much. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus in reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there only be only there will be only the seen in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. Can you notice those moments, even if it's just a moment? Uh, Just seeing, just hearing, Uh, just sensing, just sensing the body sitting. Just a thought coming and going. Noticing when the self doesn't get born. Let's take another step on another, for at least for me, a more subtle level of uh, where there's these arenas, what I'd call these arenas of experience, where this birth of the self is even uh, sneakier. <laughs> it, feels, uh, it, it, it feels sometimes uh, more subtle, hidden in some kind of way, yet, yet uh, really quite present. And the teaching that I want to share with you to help with this is uh, the, the five aggregates. And again, I, I, I want to share them in a way, many ways to share this teaching, but in a way that that hopefully will open up just a, a way of becoming curious and exploring. So there's a lot to this teaching, and I just want to briefly go over it in a way to open it up. The Pali Upadana Kanda, um, these clinging aggregates. Upadana is the is the word for... for um, Clinging and kanda could be uh, translated also as a heap or a pile or a part of experience that the mind is likely to create a self around. And this word upadana is very fitting for this exploration that I'm sharing with you. It It's often translated as, as clinging, but it literally means fuel. So another way of getting a sense of this is that clinging or the craving is the fuel that that the the birth of the self feeds off of the self is, is is basically being fueled by the clinging. That's its fuel, and then when the fuel is taken away, then the 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 the, the self um, uh, uh, is no longer there. And that might fit on a feeling sense for what you're exploring. So I want to go over these five areas and just a, a ways of of in a very simple way and ways of, of becoming curious about it. The first aggregate, the first, first khanda, uh, rupa. And in this context, I find it helpful to, uh, to see this khanda is in terms of the body. The, the sense of here is this body. And I find it a really interesting arena to explore around this sense of self because it's so, it's so ingrained in that. Whose body is this? This is my body. Where am I situated? I'm situated right here in this body. You might get that feeling, <laughs> probably do. And sometimes what I'll do in, in my walking meditation or sitting meditation or just, just in, the, in between times, it's becoming curious of where the sense of this is who I am resides. And a lot of times it's this feeling sense of there's this like claiming of the body itself. Oh, interesting. It's like all these sensations that I'm sensing around the entire body, I'm claiming as me. And just seeing that, again, there's a freeing up of this identification because it's just seeing that there's some kind of claiming of all of these sensations. And that at other times for some, and this might be different for different people, actually I'd haven't. be so curious where it is for people. Sometimes when I'm meditating, especially in sitting meditation, it feels like there's a part of the body where there's more of identification with it than other parts of the body. So sometimes it feels like I'm residing somewhere back here in my back or in the head. And then it's just turning attention towards it and just noticing that it's just a conglomeration of sensations. There's a quality of the self thinning out. So it's just becoming curious about that. Again, not in a complicated way. It's not this analysis or figuring out. It's just noticing if there's a, an, an a place where there's this sense of self and where it's residing and just bringing awareness that to, to that, just bringing mindfulness to that. Because what are you going to find there? sensations. You're not going to find a self there. And that's where that can start to open up a bit. Just a quality of curiosity around that. Another aggregate, Vedna. The way I play with this in terms of the five aggregates is I uh, expand it a bit and I see it in terms of preference and how uh, this quality of preference gets formed into a, a, a self. I just noticed this, I think, the other day. Eggplant. Eggplant is an unpleasant experience for me. <laughs> and what I noticed when I was going through the line is that that was the identity that I was carrying. Is I don't know if I should take some of the eggplant parmesan because I'm someone who doesn't like eggplant. It's unpleasant for me. So I'm going to be the one who doesn't take it because that's who I am. But it's it's this whole construction that happens just in the dining around the table there. Why should I listen to that? Why should I, you know, create a a, a self around that? And just noticing how there's an emergence of this is who I am. And so great to take a piece of eggplant parmesan because there's this assumption that each bite of eggplant is going to taste the same as the next one or the last one. And that's how the sense of self gets formed. How is there a sense of self that might be emerging through preference and then the clinging around that the clinging around what's pleasant and unpleasant and just noticing that or around perception the ability the process of the mind that names things again i find this such a subtle place where there's a sense of self who is it that says that that's a tree Well, that's me. Just to use the label perception, oh, perceiving, when the word tree arises. Or sometimes I'll just take a break from the labeling when I'm doing the sitting meditation, when there's a a label of thinking or judging. And when when a label arises, just to notice that that is just perceiving, that's the arising of perception to notice what happens when you can label that. Again, something to explore. The kind of playfulness, the kind of curiosity. Sankara, again, a way to, to, to play with this is to see this Pali word in one definition of it is volitional formation, which is this curiosity around intention, which we've spoken about before the curiosity of that, it, that on a general level, it feels like I am the one moving my hand right now. I am the one who's walking. You might get a feeling sense of that about to moment that has a different sense of that and that how the, 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 there's a kind of thinning of the self when we get a feeling sense of that. And then even more subtle, consciousness, vijnana. Who's aware? Who is aware? I am aware. And as I was talking about last, last week, just noticing, just with the sound of the bell. Oh, there's the sound and there's the knowing. Sound arising, hearing arising, and the knowing of the hearing. And when there's this strong mindfulness, there's the experience of, that it's just knowing. There's nobody there. Again, this is an invitation just with a quality of a relaxed curiosity and to keep it simple. My mind does a wonderful job of complicating such teachings. It's just having this more in the back of your mind and a kind of sensitivity to the arising, to the birth of the self. I want to point out, as you explore the emergence of the self, if this, if this feels like it's, it's, it's ripe for you or ripens in, in your practice, I also want to share with you that, for me, this insight into the birth of the self or becoming someone, a maybe a more apt way of exploring it, is all the different ways that this mind is trying to become someone. It was not, an, it was not always a pleasant insight when this happened. It was often very disruptive and destabilizing. And the reason for that, for me, and it might be different for you, but I want to name this, is that for me, it was, what came with that was the realization of how much of my life had been spent trying to become somebody on the most subtle level to the biggest levels. And it, it was, at times for me, when there was the, this insight started to emerge, this real disruption of what it meant to live. Because so much of my life was about becoming someone, and that's so many of the stories i learned. What is it to live life? It's to become somebody. And then all the cultural trappings of the certain kinds of somebodies that it was quote-unquote good to become. <clears throat> it can have that feeling, and it threw me into a sense of confusion because I thought, well, if, I, if I'm not involved in becoming somebody, am I just going to become a zombie? Is that what this is all about? <laughs> Where I don't have any impulses to move forward in my life and get ahead in life? I just want to name that that feeling coming up and uh, in case it arises for you. And what I began to notice uh, as I continued to practice was... Uh, there is still, as I was beginning with, there can still be living in this world of these constructions, these constructions, the construction of a self. And even having an aspiration to be a better parent or a better partner, to gain skill at meditating or whatever else you find yourself doing in your life. But with this sensitivity, I could notice more readily how that, would, that aspiration can start to, to verge over into a kind of craving, wanting to become a certain kind of person, wanting to become a certain kind of meditator. And a lot of times, it's wanting to become the perfect meditator, the perfect teacher, the perfect partner. And then having, noticing how much dukkha is around that, the dukkha of becoming someone, And I think really what begins to arise is more of this quality, more of the quality of, of having a, more of a fluid relationship with our experience. And I'd like to share with you a, a story. It's a, a, a Taoist story that I, I feel gives a, kind of an image of the direction this goes in when we begin to let go of, we become disentangled from needing to become somebody. And this is a a story around Confucius, and just a reminder: in many Taoist stories, Confucius doesn't look so good. <laughs> That's what happens with a, kind of a Daoist a perspective. So once upon a time, Confucius was at this this river, this huge river, with all of his students, and they were at the top of this place where, uh, just beyond them, there was this. Uh, waterfall that 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 went down hundreds and hundreds of feet, and as they're at there at this at this uh, river right near this waterfall, they saw this woman in the, swept in the rapids uh, of the river heading towards the waterfall, and of course naturally there was this panic. There was this panic that that Confucius felt as well as all his students. So he uh, told all his students to go down towards the bottom of the waterfall because they weren't going to be able to catch her before she went over the waterfall. And so all of Confucius's students you know, finally got down to the bottom of the waterfall. And when they got down there, and Confucius following after them, uh, this woman was actually already out of the water and, and uh, kind of drying herself and, uh, and, and singing and doing just fine. And uh, just shocked that she had survived going over this waterfall. And so uh, Confucius asked her, what's up with this? <laughs> how did you survive this? Do you have a particular way of swimming to make this happen? And she said to him, no, I have no particular way. It became my nature to practice it, and my success in it is now as sure as fate. I enter and go down with the water in the very center of its whirl and come up again with it when it whirls the other way. I follow the way of the water and do nothing contrary to it of myself. This is how I tread it. Following the way of the water, doing nothing contrary to it. I notice when this mind isn't as hooked around becoming someone, there's an ability to respond to this fluid world that we live in, an ability to enter into this this world of process, of verbs, of unfolding. Because I've noticed what, what a quality of responsivity needs is it needs this quality of fluidity. So in light of this, in light of this exploration of the birth of the self and letting go of becoming somebody, what is the fruition of our lives in such a context? And I'd like to end with a a, a short poem by the the poet uh, Ryo Khan. To begin this poem, he, he asks, My legacy, what will it be? Interesting question. What will what will become of your life? He's asking this question. My legacy. What will it be? Flowers in spring. The cuckoo in summer. And the crimson maples of autumn. my legacy my legacy what will it be flowers in spring the cuckoo in summer and the crimson maples of autumn what will your legacy be will it be the legacy of becoming somebody or will be the legacy of actually touching touching this this activity of living and dying in an intimate way touching others in this intimate way so may our our freedom from this quality of becoming somebody lead to the liberation of all beings thank you Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening.